Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Adam Mead. We're going to be talking about his new book, The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. It's an absolute monster. It goes into some great detail and it's a fascinating discussion that's coming up right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Mate, this is a huge undertaking. 757 pages. Yeah, I, I think the final word count came in at I think 210 or 15,000 words. Wow. So, but, but, but at seven, I mean, the, Amazon has dropped the price, but uh, if, if you do the math uh, at, at the headline price of $75, it's, it's under 10 cents a page. So, you know, you're, you're getting a bargain. That's a bargain. <laughs> so how long does a project like this take to put together? It took me, I, I estimated that sort of like all in, if I were working full time, probably two and a half years, but actual start date to finish date, five years. So I, I kind of started kicking around the idea in 2016. One, you know, one thing kind of led to another. And then I said, well, geez, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of run with it. So uh, that's, that's kind of how I ended up where I am today. And when you sort of engaged in a project of this magnitude, and I see you've got, you've got a great forward by the, uh, by the great Christopher Bloomstrand, who who may have done at least as much research as you have on on Berkshire Hathaway, what, what do you what did you learn through this project that you hadn't sort of understood about Berkshire Hathaway previously? I came to really appreciate what they've built, and even just more more of the nuance in how. It's almost contradictory to say, but how simple the the game plan was, but how difficult the execution was, and, and even, uh, I mean, there was a period there between eighty two and ninety two, where they lost money in underwriting, every single year. I mean, they were profitable because of investments, but uh, this this what we see today is this incredible. Uh, appreciated and uh, admired business it took a lot to really get it going. And there were some times there during the seventies. I mean, they started some of these home state companies, these insurers that operate in, in individual States and, and some of them failed. I mean, it really was this entrepreneurial venture and it took a lot to figure out. And, uh, and it was fascinating to kind of see Berkshire built year by year. And that's what I really wanted to do. Uh, Toby was, was build, build a book. Uh, I wrote the book that I never found, which was Berkshire A to Z year by year. And so I, I hope I've captured that uh, awesome detail in the years, but also kind of that broad, uh, I, I do each chapter is 10 years. And so I, I hope I've captured both the, the broader lessons, the broader arc, as well as, uh, as that, that lovely detail in each year. But filled in uh you know of course i i quote buffett pretty extensively I'm, I'm not trying to outdo him but merely add add some of that great detail that's uh that's down in the the 10k that's that's not uh always highlighted in his letters he's very quotable i've said this before but when i try to tweet out something that buffett has written and often you've got the the 280 character limit it's very hard to remove a word from what he says and still convey the same meaning that he has in what he has said. He's very um, sparing with the words that he uses and he's uh, very effective at communicating exactly what he means. Yeah, and it it, it was uh, actually, and, and you mentioned Chris Bloomstrand, he really helped me find my voice in this book. Uh, the, the, the earlier drafts of the manuscripts were very much, you know, Buffett said, Buffett said, Buffett said. And, and what Chris really helped me do was keep, uh, keep Buffett's words. You know, I, I can't outdo Buffett. He said it, you know, beautifully in, in every year, but really just add to it, but also do it in, in my own voice. 
uh, because you're right. And, and stringing all of these together, uh, it, it, Buffett's letters, I mean, you, you can read them and, and anybody can really do what I did and digesting, you know, 10,000 pages of research material. Uh, and I'd encourage anybody to do it. So, so by, by contrast, uh, you know, maybe 750 pages doesn't seem so much. Uh, and so I, I hope I've added something to the, the, the library that's already out there on Berkshire Hathaway. Well, let's, let's start from the beginning. Folks who, I'm sure that most folks who listen to this podcast are probably students of Buffett and have spent some time reading through the letters. And if they haven't, shame on you, go do that right now. Um, but let's, let's start from the very beginning. How does uh, Warren Buffett come to be in control of Berkshire Hathaway? Well, we can even take it. So, uh, and I'll just, just uh, a quick story. When I first started writing the book, I said, I'm going to, um, 1965 is sort of the origin. Warren Buffett takes control of Berkshire Hathaway. So that's, that's the origin. That's the nexus of, of how the book is kind of centered. So I said, I'm going to go back to 1955, look at what the company did during that preceding decade, and then work my way year by year, and then stop at each 10-year period. And so I wrote the first uh, two chapters, roughly uh, 55 to 74. And I sent those off to Warren, and to my surprise and delight, uh, he wrote back and said, uh, glad you're doing this. Um, uh, wouldn't it be interesting if you went back to the World War II era and took a look at this sort of brief respite of profitability that the companies had before resuming this downward spiral? And uh, of course, Warren Buffett's, you know, suggesting this. I'm going to do it. Uh, <laughs> no, but, thanks, Warren. That... You just stay in your lane. I'm writing this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, but that really led me to go back. I said, if I'm going to go back to the, the 30s or 40s, I might as well go back all the way to the beginning. And so I'm, I'm really lucky to live in New Hampshire, which is right next door to Massachusetts. I went down to the Boston Public Library. I had access to all of this wonderful history uh, of the early Berkshire predecessor companies from the 1800s uh, all the way up until they merged in 1955 to form Berkshire Hathaway. And so the, the, the book literally starts with the textile industry. And it's, it's almost, uh, I mean, you look at Berkshire today, it, it's nothing like it was back then, but there's so many lessons in those early years. Uh, and I don't spend an, an inordinate amount of time on those, those early years, but it is instructive to see uh, both how that industry developed and then the challenges that uh, they encountered, which ultimately led to uh, uh, sort of when the action happens in 1955, which is when Berkshire Fine Spinning and Hathaway Manufacturing merged to, to create Berkshire Hathaway. What was really fascinating uh, to see is that the managers of Berkshire Hathaway from, from 55 to, uh, to 65, they returned about half of the capital back to shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. And, and those actions were actually what attracted Buffett to the stock in the first place. And so 1962, he starts picking up shares for Buffett Partnership Limited. Uh, then the famous uh, snuff where Seabury Stanton uh, tells Buffett that he's going to give him one price and the, the tender offer comes in at uh, 12 and a half cents lower and uh, the rest is history. So Buffett takes over. Uh, at the famous board meeting in uh, in May of 1965, and so that's that's why when we look at his Berkshire's history today, that's really where it starts. And so w once he gets control, he's got this uh, basically a moribund um, textile manufacturer, and he transforms it into what we've seen today. So how does that transformation begin? It. It starts, and, and you have to remember at this time, Buffett ultimately went all in on Berkshire when he wound up his partnership in 1969. But at this point, Berkshire was just one of many investments in Buffett Partnership Limited. Uh, but Berkshire became this platform, uh, and he called it a mistake, but, but the biggest event that happened for Berkshire was in 1967 when they bought National Indemnity. Uh, an insurance company in Omaha uh, for, for 8.6 million, I think. Th that became the platform to, to grow and became the powerhouse uh, of what it is today. But, but the business and, and, and Berkshire built off of that, Warren learned a ton about insurance. 
But that was sort of the first capital reallocation that happened uh, for Berkshire Hathaway. And then uh, interestingly, Toby, uh, in 1969, uh, Berkshire bought the Illinois National Bank and Trust of Rockford, Illinois. That acquisition was actually uh, the largest acquisition as a percentage of Berkshire's equity capital at the time at about 44%. So uh, it, was a, it was a huge move. They actually borrowed some money to, to make the acquisition. Uh, it was about a little under $18 million. And so th- those, those two first sort of big acquisitions are really the, the start of reallocating the capital from a dying textile business into something better. And, and all the while, Buffett's, of course, picking stocks uh, within Berkshire Hathaway uh, for the account for national indemnity. And then, of course, with, with his, his partnership. But that's really the shift uh, to allocating capital to wholly owned businesses. And then, of course, uh, 1972 sees candy. And, uh, and then some of the other bigger, uh, more well-known investments like uh, the Washington Post, which happened during that time as well. Buffett spends a lot of time talking about seize candy as sort of, um, you know, manifesting a sea change in the way that he had thought about investing before then, for all the reasons that we've discussed in, in the past. But which do you think is a more transformative acquisition moving from a a textile manufacturer into insurance and banking or then moving again into this uh, higher return sort of investment style? Yeah, I I would, you know, the most important acquisition probably was national indemnity. Uh, And and I would argue, and I think Buffett would probably agree that he didn't realize how good of an acquisition it was at the time. I mean, when when he bought it for, uh, for under, a little under nineteen, a uh, little under nine million, it had uh, about nineteen million of float, and so you know today was oh geez that's a steal, but it really became the platform upon which Berkshire was built, and it became this rocket fuel uh, w- with float. It it did like I said, it took a little while for them to understand how to run it appropriately, and, and so he he could see. Uh, Jack Ringwald was an excellent manager. He could see that that national indemnity can be run really well. So he could see the potential there. He also saw the potential in banking, in, in a well-run bank, uh, in the Rockford Bank. Uh, but, but in insurance, which is really what they went into heavily, you have uh, all of these insurance companies, the home state companies that I mentioned, formed in the 1970s. Again, some of which failed. Um, and it, it was interesting to me. I don't spend any time talking about Buffett's personal life because uh, others have done a, a better job at that. Um, but it was interesting to me to see his entrepreneurial spirit sort of manifest itself in Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, he was not afraid to start these companies. Again, some of them failed, merged into other ones. Uh, they bought this home and auto insurance business in, um, in Chicago, tried to replicate it in Miami. It failed. Uh, just, it, it, was, it was a tough go in those early years. Uh, but insurance really became the, the powerhouse. And then, of course, they figured out, okay, we can go into the super cat business and then ultimately uh, reinsurance where they said, we can operate conservatively, but still be aggressive in the sense of taking the lumpiness looking at this from a probabilistic standpoint and saying, okay, we can, uh, the, the famous quote about accepting uh, lumpy 15% returns uh, instead of a smooth 12, he was actually talking about insurance, uh, but of course it applies to, uh, to equity investments as well. Uh, but he really found a way to leverage Berkshire's strengths uh, in a major way during that time. What was the main challenge in setting up those uh, those new insurance companies? Why did they fail so frequently? I think it was a matter of of uh, he he had some some managerial issues uh, actually, and some of it was was informational as well. And so they figured out that, uh, and again, this is where he really he. he the, the focus today on underwriting profitability, first and foremost, was a lesson that had to be learned. And uh, you, you don't know in insurance until maybe possibly many years down the road what, what you're, the risks you're taking on today. 
And so uh, part of it was was the people. And then, it, of course, famously in 1985, Ajit Jain comes on and, and really uh, insurance takes off at that point. So it was the, it was the managers. And then uh, with the home and auto business in Miami, it was actually an accounting issue. And so you have to remember, and, and this is maybe uh, very apt today, uh, the inflation of the 1970s, they were not getting the information on how the policies, how the risks and the costs associated with repairing vehicles and bodies uh, were, were, were changing. And so they were continuing to write policies that ultimately, and if they had the information, they would have stopped writing them, but they didn't. And so uh, part people, part information flow, and really trying to get all of this to work together. So there was a little bit of it. There was an uh, inflation kicking off. And then I think that the awards, they started getting punitive damages for awards, which, which meant that the, uh, the payments were bigger again, even than inflation might have suggested. And so they were just under reserving for those ballooning costs through the 70s. Yeah, they, they, he, he termed it social, uh, social and ju judici judicial inflation, where, where juries were effectively providing coverage uh, retroactively uh, that they had not priced in. So let's uh, let's talk about the 70s, uh, 75 to 84. So he's completed the acquisition of C's, expressed this desire to pay for higher quality sort of businesses. What happens through that period? Yeah, well, well interestingly, uh, and this is, uh, shows you sort of the power of the Graham base uh, that, that he started with, um, 1975, they bought Wombeck Mills, which was another textile operation, actually, uh, 10 miles up the road here from me in, in Manchester, New Hampshire. And, um, so, so he was still sort of in this, I see the power of them, but I know these other businesses. Um, but, but that, that decade also featured the Buffalo news. And I love the Buffalo news because, uh, it, it had a couple of stumbles at the beginning, but they based, they bought that business basically at book value. And, uh, and once the competitor went out, um, the, the, the courier express that that was the classic, uh, excellent business. I mean, it was a monopoly in the Buffalo area. It, it could print money. Uh, but what I love about the Buffalo news is you can follow that business through Berkshire over time and see it go from this, excellent franchise to a good business to a really tough business. And ultimately uh, last year it was sold uh, to Lee enterprises. And so you, you could follow it through Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and, and as it changed and, it, and it, it reminds me, and I think the lesson to take there is again, use, use Buffett wor Buffett's words, uh, investing is, is a movie, not a picture. And it really business evolves over time and things change. And, and so, uh, I, I really like that example, um, but but this decade also sees you know uh, uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart, uh, some of the big uh, investments in in Geico and uh, General Foods and th and those kind of things. So th there's there, there's this sense of moving towards better businesses, but but also kind of just uh, picking up some of these other good ones as well. We sort of jumped over a little bit, but it's I think the Buffalo <laughs> News, like like you like you uh, like you point out. Uh, is sort of uh, an illustrative uh, own, uh, business to, to for them to have acquired because the initial acquisition they lost money for a long time uh, while they were in that sort of uh, knife fight with uh, with the competitor in Buffalo, and I think that Charlie Munger may have been writing blue chip stamps or he was discussing it contemporaneously at the time where he was saying, you know, we may never recover. <laughs> from this acquisition. So do you want to talk a little bit about the, uh, about the, the, the nature of that acquisition and what happened after it was acquired in the immediate sort of period after it was acquired? Yeah, they, they could see that uh, they, they, they figured out, I mean, their, their thesis was multi or two newspaper towns were going to become one newspaper town. So when you had one newspaper, that got, got the most uh, readership, the most advertising. It was a, a virtuous cycle. 
the, the bet, and again, another lesson from the Buffalo News, it, it was not clear going in that this would be a winner. And uh, so, so Buffalo had the Buffalo News and the Courier Express. And uh, th- these, the Courier had the, the dominant Sunday edition. And so when, when uh, Buffett came in, purchased this, they said, well, we're going we're gonna to institute a Sunday edition. Uh, economics, uh, competitive dynamics being what they are. The Courier Express is not just going to sit there and, and take this. They fight back. Uh, there's a couple of years of red ink. And, and again, it, it shows there was not room for two. Uh, and I think Buffett had said, you know, there's, there's no red ribbon in, uh, in the newspaper business uh, like this. And um, it was, again, it was a couple of years of, of, of fighting with, uh, with, with this, this duo. And so, uh, you know, for us to look back and say, oh, you know, Buffalo News, that was a cinch and that, you know, it was a great franchise and this and that. Uh, it, it really, the, from the ground up, uh, was was more difficult than it that may have seemed, uh, even even though they could see the potential for it. But that business, uh, they paid, I think, about uh, thirty five million for it. I mean, it it, it pretty quickly uh, paid for itself once once the Courier Express uh, folded. Um, and then, of course, uh, we just talked about the history of it, it kind of declining and. Uh, but, but it was interesting to see, um, I mean, actually, a, a, another sort of operational um, uh, lesson from, from the Buffalo News, uh, where, where the Buffalo News is actually uh, shares uh, similarities with, with C's Candy, is this focus on quality. And so the Buffalo News had a 50% news hole, and, and a news hole is, is um, you think of the whole paper, uh, the new, the news percentage of the whole paper, and so the the focus was on delivering this high quality uh, news set, and that that propelled this uh, cycle. And as as the business declined, the, there really was a focus on maintaining the editorial, the the news staff, and not cutting on. Uh, cutting cutting the meat out, and um, and that was the same with C's Candy. Uh, when they couldn't find ingredients or inflation took over, that they did not uh, skimp on on the ingredients, and so it was the same thing with the paper, and um, and, and so the, the lessons there, not just for investors, but I think with with managers and with operating uh, businesses that uh, focus really on what's going to drive things for the customer, and and with the Buffalo News, they were able to increase readership uh, even above what the the Courier Express enjoyed during its heyday. So uh, it, it was clearly a winning formula. The next decade uh, from 85 to 94 is a particularly interesting one because that's when you get the leverage buyout boom and uh, the junk fueled takeovers and all of that sort of stuff happening. So take us through the, uh, the, the 85 to 94 period. Sure. So, so the biggest thing I think in, that, in this decade is, uh, is jettisoning the textile business. Uh, 1985, they shut that down. And, and it's really, uh, it's sort of interesting just to think of all, all of the business that Berkshire is at that time was spawned from this dying textile business. And so that, that lesson there that you don't have to uh, stay in the same business and capital allocation really does work uh, to transform uh, a business. Um, one of my favorite acquisitions in this decade, uh, Toby, is Scott Fetzer. Uh, it, that business at the time, Scott Fetzer was this mini conglomerate. Like you said, it was p- part of this uh, LBO boom. I mean, it was a great business. Um, management tried to buy it out with an ESOP plan. It didn't work. Uh, it ultimately ends up in, in Berkshire Hathaway. And at the time, Scott Fetzer... Uh, the, the two big divisions were the World Book and uh, Kirby. And then about, uh, call it 15 to 18 other businesses made up the, the remaining 20%. It was this little mini conglomerate in its own right, but it, it basically doubles Berkshire's revenue base. That business literally fades to a footnote in the, I think, 2002, 2003 uh, financial statements. Um, and... But yet it remained a really good business. And, and, and the lesson there is you can, 
essentially harvest profits. Uh, growth does not is not the the be all end all. It's about the cash generation of the business. And and the manager of that business, Ralph Shea, actually improved the business such that they were able to grow earnings while returning more than 100% of earnings to Omaha. Um, it's kind of a little forgotten business in, in Berkshire. Um, you, know, you really don't hear too much about it or, or its subsidiary companies today, uh, but it's one of my favorites uh, for illustrating a lot of these lessons that happened during that time. Uh, when, does, when does Buffett revisit American Express? When does he revisit it? Well, you, so he had bought it initially in the partnership and he had m- made uh, a great deal about the fact that it was a business that didn't find its value in the assets. And it was he had it in a partnership at the time when there were two other, uh, I think they were net nets or sub-liquidation value companies. Um, and so American Express was sort of a distinctly different beast to the to the two that he had previously acquired. I, I just wasn't sure was it uh, whether it was in that the, the tail end of that 85 to 94 decade or, or is it the next decade? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm r- racking my memory here, but it, it actually shows up in, in the, uh, in the, in the early days, actually, it, it was part of the portfolio in the sixties. I'm going to have to double check myself there, but it was, it was definitely there in the earlier days. Um, when they went into that heavily, I'm going to have to, I, I want to say you're, you're right on that, but I don't want to give you a, a specific uh, answer, which is uh, a casualty of, of writing a book about uh, such a well-studied uh, company. It's like, uh-oh, somebody's going to ask me some, some specific <laughs> questions. So you, you've, you've, uh, you caught me here, Toby. Do, do, you, do, you, uh, do, you, do you know much about the, the American Express acquisition? Is that one that you've, that you've canvassed in some detail? Not, not in any great detail. And, and it, was, it was a challenge uh, for me to, I mean, I mean each, each of these, I mean, you could write, and, and I, my bookshelf behind me here, uh, th- there were books written on some of these subsidiaries. Um, the challenge, even within almost 800 pages, to keep, uh, tell enough about it, but, but uh, not go too deep uh, was, was certainly a challenge. I see you got two poor Charlies back there. Is that, uh, did you need a second one? Well, what, one's the first uh, edition, and then the second is a, a signed uh, third edition. Oh, I had, I kicked myself. I had an opportunity to buy a first edition signed copy. I passed on it, and uh, the, the price went up. So, so uh, <laughs> the, the, what what else happens in that eighty five to ninety four decade is that is that when they start acquiring the junk bonds after the bust? Uh, so that the I guess that decade was um, I think that that was well sort of around that time the 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 nineties um, the, the eighty five to ninety four so you have uh, these these couple of preferred stock deals during that time. Uh, of course, the most famous uh, is the the Salomon issue, um, which was eighty seven. Um, I think it was a, it was a seven hundred million dollar issue, and it was something like ten percent of Berkshire's equity capital. Uh, but they also had issues uh, Gillette, Champion, and uh, uh, U.S. Air. Of course, was the the one that that had its uh, had its fall. Um, the, the the junk bond stuff I think happened in the next decade. Um, I mean, there was there was a couple of different periods. Uh, they picked up um, Fruit of the Loom uh, as it was originally a, a junk bond issue. Uh, they purchased uh, Amazon. They actually purchased some Amazon junk bonds. Uh, I think in two thousand three, and uh, that was uh, famously, or maybe not so famously now. I think Amazon was one of two companies that expensed stock options, and so uh, it was it was more about you know hey we can we can trust this management team and, and it's just it's really it was really interesting to see some of these uh, historical artifacts pop up and uh, and even some of the same players coming around from from year to year or decade to decade. I think one of the another very interesting decade is the ninety five to two thousand four because that's the late nineteen nineties. Berkshire is absolutely. Uh, Berkshire's doing very well, uh, but it's also we, we go into the the dot com mania. But Chris Bloomstrand pointed out the 
the sort of the elegance or the beauty of the acquisition of uh, General Re. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk us through the, that decade and, and maybe just a little expand a little bit on Gen Re? Yeah, so, so the 90, 95 to 2004 decade, um, there was a lot that went on in, in this decade. Um, Geico, they bought the remaining half of Geico in 1996. Um, th- there was actually a number of, oh, this was the, the same, same year they issued the B shares um, with, with that whole uh, potential debacle. They had a couple of acquisitions where they issued shares as well as uh, purchased uh, acquisitions for cash. So there was these uh, flight safety, um, Dairy Queen was another, another one, Executive Jet, which is, is now known as, uh, as NetJets. Um, and then, and then the, in the 2000s, there was this, this whole uh, uh, host of, of acquisitions of uh, boring businesses like uh, uh, Acme Brick, which was Justin Industries, and uh, they, they bought the utility business. But nine, 98 uh, was really that, that pivot point. And uh, it's, it's interesting is it's, it's sort of a, a topic of um, debate, uh, if you will, as to whether that was a conscious effort by Buffett to make this switch. And so uh, at that time, Berkshire shares were selling uh, over two times book value and uh, they, they had a pretty heavy stock to bond concentration. And so the, the argument that Chris makes is that it was an elegant way to shift using expensive shares to, to, to buy Gen Re in an all stock deal, a $22 billion stock deal, and essentially shift uh, the stock bond allocation in a tax-free way. Uh, the way I've looked at it in the book, Toby, is... Um, I, I do mention that uh, the, the the stock bond switch. Um, I, I guess I don't really uh, have an opinion on whether that was intentional or not, but it, it is interesting the way I've looked at it, uh, and the way I looked at the Geico acquisition in 1996 is uh, cost of float. And so when you adjust um, when you adjust the float that uh, or the, you adjust the price for the ratio of intrinsic value of Berkshire shares at that time, Berkshire paid uh, basically one times float or about uh, 14 billion for Genry. So I'm not sure, it it may have been all of the same, uh, but it's interesting in the the press release for Genry, you you hear Buffett say a word which he very rarely says in a positive context and that's synergy. (laughs) He actually uses the word synergy and uh, and so Gen Re had had a, a really good history of of writing business right around a little a be- little bit below one hundred percent combined ratio. The last couple of years before they bought it were a little bit over that one hundred percent. But they were capital constrained; they couldn't do certain things because they were a standalone entity. And so I think I think it was more th- those other things were sort of incidental, but the real uh, push was really this platform to buy uh, uh, buy a reinsurer. Of course, they had um, uh, a major interest in uh, in Cologne Re and some of these other German uh, reinsurers. But but Gen Re, I think at the time was around maybe six billion dollars worth of uh, uh, of premiums, uh, which which dwarfed Berkshire's own reinsurance operations. So. Um, it was sort of that that other platform of insurance uh, where you had uh, the the home state businesses, uh, the, the sort of organic uh, primary businesses, um, Geico, Berkshire Hathaway Reinsurance, and then Genry sort of comes in there as uh, as sort of the last piece of the puzzle, if you will. Did is it does the the weapons of mass destruction in reference to um, all of the uh, futures and the, the odd sort of structured finance deals, do, do they come out of the Gen Re deal? Yeah, so uh, 
you you see Buffett uh, sort of turn on Ron Ferguson, who was the manager at the time. He praised him. He was actually invited to be on the Berkshire board uh, and declined. Um, Buffett told Ajit Jain and, and Ron Ferguson to cut their exposure on, uh, on the World Trade Center. Ajit did it. Ferguson did not. Buffett was livid when, when the, the, the Trade Center uh, happened. Um, more because he saw it, he saw it happening, saw, saw the potential for something to happen. Um, and, uh, and, th and there was a couple other things there too, where uh, you, re you really see it in the praise of Ajit Jain, where he, he knows his risks, he, he doesn't extend himself, uh, he, he uh, stays true to the, the, the four principles of, of good underwriting. And, uh, and Ferguson, I think, was attracted to these sort of exciting things. And Buffett talks about, you know, the, the one-foot bars to step over versus the seven-foot things to leap over. Um, you know, Ajit was, was fine just finding these sort of, uh, you know, one in 100 odds that they were getting paid one to 10 type of things. And um, uh, in some ways... Genry was getting dictated terms by its customers instead of the other way around. And so uh, there, there were some painful years there. And uh, I think even Buffett wrote that it, he, he thought at one time that it could have been a mistake to, to purchase the company because it, 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 it bled red ink for, for quite a while. Uh, so that's the t that brings us to the 2005 to 2014 period. What, what, uh, what's the signature transaction through that period? Jesus, a lot that goes on in that decade too. Um, probably, I'd probably have to say that the BNSF uh, acquisition in 2010. You know, they they issued shares. Uh, it was it was a 35 billion dollar acquisition, um, huge huge deal. Um, and and just a little tidbit of uh, of trivia, if you will, uh, that the entire Class One railroad that is BNSF is owned by national indemnity. So they, they buy it for 18, 8.6 million in 1967. And it, it purchases a, a $35 billion railroad in, uh, in 2010. Um, and they did, the, and that's, it's just, it, it illustrates how Berkshire's put together and it, and it has these uh, resi resiliencies and, uh, and, and the, the railroad operates on its own, but it's earnings help support the insurance, uh, which helps keep uh, their ratios down and the capital ratios uh, good. Um, just a little, little, little tidbit. Um, but, but they buy, they buy Iscar during this decade, they buy Marmon and, and Marmon, uh, I, I think it's there on my bookshelf. Um, I mean, that, that was, we talked about Scott Fetzer as a, a conglomerate. Marmon had something like a hundred businesses. I mean, this, this was a big business. Uh, that Berkshire Hathaway swallowed up. Um, they they purchased. It was about nine billion. Half of that, uh, four and a half billion uh, in two thousand eight, and then the remainder they kind of uh, purchased over time. Um, Lubrizol was another big one. They they really start uh, in in ninety nine. They bought uh, uh, what's now Berkshire Hathaway Energy. It was Mid American Energy. Uh, that became this platform for regulated utilities, and so you see them buy. Uh, NV Energy, which is a West Coast uh, United States uh, uh, business, um, and, and they they added to that over time. Uh, but but one other thing, one other element, and the way I've I've structured the book, uh, as as you've seen, is, is decade by decade. But looking at the major capital allocation decisions that they made over those periods of time. Um, one thing that's uh, a couple things that stood out um, that just this decade, they invested something like 75 billion in capital expenditures, which was about two times the, uh, the amount of depreciation. So just this, just the organic uh, investment uh, was, was massive, really massive. And, and then of course, recently at the, the recent uh, annual meeting, Buffett talked about how uh, Berkshire has, the, the most property plant and equipment of any business in, in the United States today. 
Um, and, and there's, there's a reason for that. Uh, but one interesting thing that came out of, uh, I, I sort of paused at the 50 year mark, which was uh, 2014. Berkshire really, uh, we, we think about this concentration in Berkshire's uh, common stock portfolio, and that's true, but it's also true in the operating businesses that they, they've purchased. Berkshire over time has just continually purchased larger and larger businesses. Uh, of course, the largest being the 44% of equity capital in, uh, in the Rockford Bank. Uh, but in each subsequent decade, uh, it was no less than 15% of Berkshire's equity capital was the largest acquisition. So you have um, uh, the Buffalo News, uh, Scott Fetzer was a big one. I think that was 19 or 20%. Uh, Geico, when they bought that, that was a big one. And then BNSF. So it's, it's this continual concentration of bets, both in the investment portfolio, as well as the operating businesses. And, and you kind of roll that forward and you say, you can see the challenges that Berkshire has today in buying a, a large business because the universe has just shrunk dramatically as they've retained their capital over time. I uh, just want to take you back a little bit to the BNSF one. I, I remember reading some analysis of this. I'm not entirely sure when, but over the last five years, say, where uh, somebody said, you know, they paid $35 billion for this, but they got a lot of their capital back really quickly. And I, I forget the exact numbers now, but it was some, in, in a very short order, they had a lot of their capital back, potentially all of their capital back from that acquisition. Do you, do you have any detail on that? I do. And, and again, so uh, I'll, I'll plug my website, uh, theoraclesclassroom.com. I've actually released uh, my, my spreadsheet that I used to put together the book. Um, on the sheet, it's about, it's about 200 tabs. I, I do have in there uh, the dividends, uh, because BNSF is, is a large business that has public debt, it has to file 10Ks of its own. And so we're lucky to be able to see uh, basically everything that BNSF is doing. And so uh, you're right. I don't have this, the exact figures uh, on the tip of my tongue, but you can see the dividends that were paid uh, from BNSF up to Berkshire uh, ever since it was, was acquired. And, and I think you're right. Um, they they were they were large uh, over time and, and I th I think I'm pretty confident in saying that at this point they're they've exceeded the purchase price uh, and then of course Berkshire has this this wonderful earning asset still in the books um, yeah I just think it's one of the underappreciated aspects of what Buffett does that he he buys these things and and the capital is rapidly returned to Berkshire and then he ends up owning. The business, and so I, I, Scott Fetzer is another great example of a business that he he saw that he could return, it could get the capital back, and then uh, I wasn't aware, but but Berkshire Hathaway itself, you say initially was the thing that attracted to it, to it attracted him to it was that it was returning so much capital beforehand. So that's it's not something I've heard discussed a lot, but I think it's an important aspect of of what he does. Yeah, and it's he's gotten criticism for it. Uh, it's almost this paradox of Buffett loves getting cash, but he won't give it out. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that's the structure of Berkshire Hathaway, where they can move the capital upstream to any other business, and um, it, it really is about maximizing the potential of the business. And so, if it's a cash flow stream that grows, and they can reinvest uh, at high rates of return, great. Good rates of return, uh, that's good too. And I'm thinking of, uh, of Berkshire Hathaway Energy where, where they have not paid a dividend uh, up, up to Berkshire, the parent, uh, at all. Uh, they, they purchased it in 1999. They've retained all their earnings. And so that's allowed them to grow. Um, so he doesn't always grab that cash. I think he's, he would just prefer it uh, come to him. And, and again, with Scott Fetzer, you, you can start to incorporate all of these, uh, all of these examples of um, all these other things like management compensation and uh, incentivizing the manager based on the business itself and uh, using a, a hurdle return so that they're incentivized to send that capital and not just sit on it or reinvest it in something uh, poorly. Um, 
it, there's just there's there's all these wonderful details that come out of uh, study of Berkshire Hathaway. Seas too. I remember. T- I think he wrote a 2011. He wrote about buying it in 72 for 27 million dollars and pointing out. I think in 2011 it had returned a billion dollars or a number sort of like that over the course of the, the Berkshires holding in it. Yeah, I, I think I, I think that the latest figure was maybe two billion, um, and that that number's probably the, the last actual figure that I saw was something like eighty five million in earnings. So uh, you kind of do the math uh, that that number has to be closer to two and a half billion, I would bet today. As an investor. Uh, having conducted this uh, extensive research on the great industrialist of our age, what do you take out of it uh, that you want to use in your own process? I, I, I really came to appreciate, again, it's almost paradoxical, the, the simplicity, but also the complexity of it. Like it's the, 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 the model that I used in the book to look at all these acquisitions over time is this pre-tax return on capital. So you, you have very basically how much capital does the business need to operate? What's the capital intensity? And then what are the margins? Um, I came to realize that Buffett sort of hangs everything off of that. And you, you kind of look, you, you listen to his words and it's okay, what, what will cause margins to change? What will cause uh, capital intensity to change up or down? Uh, what will competition do to affect those things? And so it's a very simple model, but it's very hard to figure out. Um, I, I really came to appreciate just just how hard it is, I guess, um, e- even though it is simple. And um, this, this patient approach, and, and Buffett even writes about uh, several times, the strategy of having no strategy, where you just have to keep turning over rocks, keep going, uh, but be opportunistic when things come along, and um, and really just do the best thing that's in front of you at the time. Um, and and all of the mistakes, but we're, we're so lucky that Buffett highlights his mistakes, and all these mistakes are just uh, sort of reassurance that you know, geez. Um, He's going to make mistakes, learn from them, but also don't beat yourself up too much when you make the mistakes. You've got a great, you've got a chapter, uh, world's greatest conglomerate. Why is Berkshire the world's greatest conglomerate? It, I, I, I wish if, if I could have gone and I didn't have any explicit limitation, but I, I kind of stopped. I, I wanted to have a chapter on conglomerates and actually that spreadsheet that I referenced has a couple of tabs on these early conglomerates um, Textron, uh, ITT, uh, LTV, Lingtemcovat, uh, th- these early conglomerates uh, of the, the 60s sort of, um, th- th- it, they were a trend. They were the hot thing of the day. Uh, they didn't really work out because they were based on accounting machinations and trying to put together businesses that really shouldn't be put together or tinkering in them. Uh, Berkshire really benefited. And part of it was luck. I mean, let's, let's, let's say it how it is. In starting so early, they had the benefit to find all of these great businesses, put them together um, and do it in such a way that it, it really maximized uh, business potential, but also human potential is the way I put it in that. And, and I think it was it was their early years, and I say they, uh, Munger and Buffett, of operating uh, investment portfolios of stocks. And so they, the way I've termed it is, is sort of a portfolio approach. I mean, they really don't care whether they own 10% or 100% of a business, it's all of the same to them. And so putting, I think it was natural for them to put these businesses together under the same roof in terms of ownership, but leave them alone from an operational standpoint and, and maximizing the potential of each individual business, uh, like, like we just talked about in terms of taking the cash, uh, but, but not meddling in the operations and, um, to, to put together this insurance powerhouse and all of these operating businesses 
and to do it in, in a, a, a really uh, sustainable way that has, has rightly garnered so much uh, appreciation today. Uh, even though I don't think it's fully appreciated what Berkshire Hathaway is today in terms of the, the ways in which it allows businesses to, to, to maximize their potential, but does not step on the toes or try to meddle in operations. Um, it, it has the best of sort of the, the tax, tax implications as well as the operational uh, things that, that they've done. So uh, I think it I think even in the book, I, I say, I won't say it will never happen, but I think just, again, the, the luck that they started when they did, the, uh, the time in which they've had to compound this thing, uh, it probably will not be eclipsed. I won't say never, but uh, I think it'll be a, a very, very high bar uh, for anybody to, uh, to jump over. Look, I can't think of a better note to leave it on. Uh, Adam, if folks want to get in contact with you, follow along with what you're doing or buy the book, how do they go about doing that? So the, the uh, website I mentioned, my blog is uh, theoraclesclassroom.com. You can also, also go to brkbook.com. That, that'll also get you there. Uh, I'm on Twitter at brk underscore student. And uh, I also write a, a newsletter, watchlistinvesting.com. Uh, that's, that's me. And uh, I, uh, I look forward to uh, hearing from people. And um, my, my Twitter handle really says it all. I really still think of myself as a student. I'm sure there's things I missed in the book. Uh, please, you know, let me know what I missed, but also uh, just continue the conversation. We can all continue to learn from Berkshire Hathaway and, and all the wonderful lessons that it has to teach us. Well, thank you for a fascinating discussion, Adam Mead. Uh, the book is called The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway. Thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. This is a lot of fun. 